Chapter 4 of Zara the Cruel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dwarika. Zara the Cruel by John Conquest. Chapter 4. Him who goodness will not mend, he will not mend. Arabic proverb. Zara stood at the point of the great way which cleft the outer ring of the mountain and from which started the path leading down to the plateau. That the dying sheikh's daughter was expected there was no doubt. As showed the bonfire upon the mountain's highest peaks, Shrieking the purple, starlit sky with orange flames. Yet, save for the Arab who stood patiently near the spear which marked the beginning of the hidden path with the camels which had brought them safely and at full speed across the desert and the quicksands, there was neither sign of life nor shout of greeting nor firing of rifles in salutation. She looked back across the limitless, billowing desert, showing under the stars like a great ocean of endless and broken waves frozen into immobility as they surged from north to south by some magician's hand. She laughed softly at the thought of the civilization she had dropped as one drops an outworn cloak from about the shoulders and had left forever upon the outskirts of the great deserts of which she was the child. She looked ahead into the future and down the narrow path, dividing her from the dying man, over whose kingdom in the heart of the mountain she would so shortly rule. Giving no thought to her father in her utter selfishness, she laughed aloud in sheer delight at the picture conjured up by her ambition laughed until the sweet, soft notes were flung against the rocks by the hot wind from the south and carried through the cleft down to the open space where they were thrown into echo from this side to that side over the sparkling waters until they broke and were lost in the vein of the great dogs which, eyes red with hate and rough standing, fought to get out of the kennel so as to reach the woman they hated. She shivered at the sound, although the hot wind from the south enfolded her like a blanket and suddenly overwhelmed with the desire to see some living creature in the face of death and sorrows, took a quick step forward and then shrank behind a rock upon a ledge high up on the mountainside to which it seems that only a goat could possibly have climbed said blind yusuf singing to himself the corn path from hand to hand but it cometh at last to the mill he sang the words of the proverb as he sat staring down at zara the cruel as though he had eyes in the scarred face with which to see her it comes at last to the mill. It comes at the last to the mill. 
He repeated the words over and over again, whilst the rosary of Mecca slipped between his sensitive fingers, and the girl, steeped in the superstition of her race, spread hairs in the gesture of her word of misfortune and touched an amulet of good luck which hung about her neck. Did he know she was there? Had he come, ironically, to welcome her and to bid her hasten to her father's side, as had bidden the men who had awaited her at her door with swiftest camels? Or had he, dire figure of ill omen, been set upon her path by fate this night, when the scorching wind blew from the south, rolling the storm? There was no time to ponder the question. There was only just time enough in which to register a bow to lay some cunning trap into which the blind man should set his feet and find his death, as though by dire mischance. No, there was no time, for she suddenly fathomed the meaning of the intense silence and stillness, and gathering her draperies about her, slipped as noiselessly as some tiger cat under the ledge upon which the blind man sat and down the steep path. She did not look up, she did not look back, else might she have seen the face of Yusuf the blind turn in her direction with the scared mouth twisted in smile. She sped as quickly as the path would allow her, spurged by the thought of men who gathered round their dying chief, only waited for the fading heart to cease beating to acclaim one of themselves as his successor in her place. She knew full well the men who would be chosen if she failed to reach her father in time. Even Al-Assad, half-caste, bloodthirsty, ambitious, as physically powerful as the lion after which he had been named, outcast from the Binu Harb tribe, but more through the fact that his father had been a Nubian slave than for the crimes he had committed in the light-heartedness of youth. As she ran, she conjured the picture of the man who had taken blind Yusuf's place at her father's right hand and who had dared to look at her with something more than respect due to the sheikh's daughter in his handsome eyes. There was no sign of any man as she fled across the plateau, neither the hour for sleep, having come for the woman and the children, was the sound of life, but a great light shone through the barred windows of the Hall of Judgment, far up on the mountainside. She raised up the steps and stood, breathless, in the doorway, unseen by the men gathered about the men whom they loved, who lay dying of the wounds received in the last great fights with Bedouins, who had fallen upon the brigands as they peacefully returned with much spoil from raiding a caravan journeying towards Oman. Knowing the effect of a mystery upon her race, she wrapped herself in her great white cloak, pulled the wheels about her face and yashmak beneath her eyes, which flashed with no soft light. She cursed beneath her breath 
when the men rose and spoke together, looking towards Alasad, who stared down at Sheikh's line so quietly at his feet. She arrived too late. Her father had died without blessing her and proclaiming her his successor. She cared nothing about the blessing, but she knew that without the proclamation, she stood no earthly chance against the claim Al-Assad would enforce through sheer brute force. Superstition helped her in her need. She believed that the soul lingered in the body for three days after the heart had ceased to beat, and she acted unhesitatingly, fearlessly upon the belief. She bent and picked up the lance lying upon the ground and raised it above her head just as, without seeing her in the shadow, the men moved in a body towards Al-Assad. She pit her indomitable will against the mighty power of death. She flung it across the space which divided her from her father and for a friction of time pulled him back to the world he had loved exceeding well. Hail, father, she shouted. Hail, father, she shouted again as the men turned swiftly in her direction, then moved hastily backwards when the right hand of the men whom they supposed dead moved. Motionless from fear, they stared at, without recognizing Zara as she stood tall and straight in the shadows, wrapped in white from head to foot. Her eyes closed under the supreme effort she was making. Her right hand raised, holding a spear ready for throwing. She bent a little forward as she made one last bid for power. And the sonorousness of her voice, which sounded like the calling of evil, one in the mountain, the men touched the amulet around their necks. Hail, father! She shouted once again until her words seemed to beat like wings against the walls, which had been built by holy hands. Speak, Father, our true Pasathon. Speak, speak, speak. Al Asad, the lion hearted, backed against the wall as the Sheikh, his feet upon the edge of the world to come, slowly turned his head towards his daughter. The others flung the end of their cloaks across their eyes, touching their amulets. The girl stood quite still, her father dead white, her nostril pinched, her breath whistling between her closed teeth. Farewell, daughter, rule wisely in my stead. Take only from those who have more than is necessary for life. Lift up the fallen, help the needy. Spared not in charity towards my brother Yusuf, with whose safe keeping I charge thee, lest ever befall thee. Throw thou the spear ere I close my eyes, as a sign that thou steppest into my shoes, O my daughter. The sheikh's words rang clear as a bell, but as though from a long distance, his eyes did not waver as the spear, through with unerring aim, flashed across the room. He whispered, Mercedes, and closed them forever as it buried itself in the 
cushions at his feet. Zara the Cruel had triumphed for a moment over death, but she had caught the look of dismay on Al-Assad's face and stealing the movement of the men hands towards their commandments. Without hesitating, with no intention of allowing a second to elapse before driving her victory home, she passed slowly up the room towards the dais, unarmed, fearless in the strength of her tremendous personality. She took no notice of the men as wrapped in her cloak and wig. She slowly ascended the steps of the dais and knelt to kiss her father. She looked down upon him for a moment, then taking a massive gold ring from the first finger of his right hand, slipped it on her own and rose to her feet. Tis she, whispered Rolex. Tis Zara the Krill. Nay, brother, it cannot be. She was a child bordering upon womanhood. This is a woman grown. Who is at the gazelle in her walk and as the jasmine in her perfume? Maybe this the spirit of her mother who has come to meet the Lord or perchance. They stopped speaking and took a step nearer the center of dais as Zara played her trump card. She dropped the waves from her hair, the yesmak from before her face, and the cloak from her shoulders, standing revealed in the garment she had done at Hatta in the oasis of Hari. She was ravenous from hunger and almost dead with fatigue, but stood without a tramp, glittering from head to foot in the jewels which embroidered the voluminous orange satin trouser travel-stained sandals and the bolero, which allowed the satin skin to show at the waist. Her face was white, her crimson mouth parted in a slight smile, her yellow eyes passed slowly from one face to the other, and on to the next to those fierce, unscrupulous men who watched her for a while and then, with all inconstancy of the Arab, reverted with the exception of Al-Assad to their former elegance as they succumbed to the call of her beauty. A sudden tremendous shout of reception and of welcome went up. Allah Vaslan, Allah Vaslan. They shouted the words over and over again until the women and children wakened on the far side of mountains and the birds which inhabited the secluded spot rose twittering and screaming in clouds. To be whirled this way and that way by the wind from the south, which seemed in its suffocating heat to have swept across the open mouth of hell. Slowly, Zara, the beautiful, the relentless, raised her right hand, upon which shone her father's ring above her head to quell the tumult and as a great silence fell, stretched out to the men who, with the exception of Al-Assad, rushed forward and kneeling, touched her sandal foot, acknowledging her as chief. She had won. There was no tenderness, no love in her eyes as she looked down upon them. Neither was there softness in her heart as she looked into the future. She would rule the men with an iron hand and drive them with a whip of steel. 
favoring those who did her bidding, trading beneath her heel those who rebelled until she ground them in the dust. She would be their Hadiya, the woman to lead them into battle, even as had led Aisha, the wife of Muhammad, the prophet of Allah, the one and only God. She would make the mountain home a corner of paradise and her dwelling a place of gold and precious stones as a frame of her beauty. I stand in my father's place, O oh man, she cried. I have taken the ring of government from the sheikh's fingers, which are locked in those of death. Obey me, and I will raise you to the heights you, nah, not one of you have dreamed of. Rebel, and I will set your bodies upon the highest peak as a foot for vultures. I will go forth with you, lead you, yeah, give uh, until I have come to the end of my words, for I will not speak again. Yeah, I will lead you forth and bring you back with the golden kettle and fair women until the frame of these rocks is spread from the north to the south and from the east to the west. I will have none but the beautiful, none but the brain about me to do my bidding. I, she stopped short at a sound from the far end of the hall and raised her head. Yusuf, blind, scared, terrible to behold, strayed back at her from the shadow of the door, challenging her proud statement with his empty orbits, repudiating her words without a sound or movement. Save for Yusuf the blind, she concluded slowly, as she raged inwardly at the man's temerity, whom I must need to take to my heart in obedience of my father's dying wish. She gave no outward sign of rage which swept her as she finished speaking, but she looked round for someone upon whom to vent her breath and found him in Al-Assad who leaned against the wall, watching her from out the corner of his eyes. Thou, she said, her voice cutting across the silence like a whip. Why for standest thou when others kneel? The lion does not flee before Gazelle, replied Alessar, who had loved her from the first moment he had seen her. Zara made a little motion of her hand, which brought the men to their feet then beckoned Al-Assad, who walked slowly towards her, into the trap she had set for him. She had more than one weapon in her armory and more than one form of punishment in her mind. That the men loved her in his savage way, she had always known that he had worked to succeed the dead sheikh and thereby to force her into becoming his own woman if she wished to rule. She had guessed intuitively and in a second of time had thought out a plan in which through his humiliation she could revenge herself for the insult. She was well above medium height but seemed small beside Al-Assad as he towered above her, mighty arm folded across his breast looking down upon her beauty. 
He was a magnificent animal with all the animal's instinct and a dog's fidelity. But she feared him not a bit. She looked up at the handsome face with almost negroid lips and into the fleshy eyes down into the heart, as childish as it was vain, and smiled and raised her hand when he made a quick step forward. I am footsore, she said softly. I have cut my sandals upon the rocky path. She may have heard the sharp intake of breath, but she took no notice when the men turned, the one to the other, as Alassad knelt. His fingers trembled in the tumult of his love for the beautiful woman as he unfastened the knotted ribbons of her sandals. His heart leapt as he bent and kissed the little foot, leaving his manhood in the dust beneath it. He sprang to his feet, holding the golden sandal against his breast, shrinking back against the wall at the men's laughter in which the woman he loved joined. Neither does the gazelle fear the dead lion, she mocked, as he fled from the hall out into the night and up to his dwelling upon the mountainside, where he flung himself full length upon the ground with the golden sandal against his lips. I love thee, I love thee, love thee, he whispered, and will serve thee to my last hour and with all my strength. If I cannot be thy king, thy master, I will be thy slave. One day perchance, Thou too wilt weaken to love and learn what suffering means. If he had but known love had come to her, love for the white man, causing her to suffer through the shaft of the chains which bound her. Zara watched the great figure as he fled past blind Yusuf and through the doorways out into the night, then smiled and stopping lifted her cloak and spread it across the dead sheikh. I will sleep in the bed of my fathers, she said curtly. Bring me meat and wine to my bedchamber. Tomorrow I will commit my dead father to the sands and will make choice amongst the slaves for those who will attend me both night and day. Obey me and I will be well with all of you. Resist me and your lives will be even darker than this night of storm. The men, so long held upon the leash by the dead chief, so long baffled in their fierce desires, shouted their praises as they made a way for her. She passed them without looking at them, glittering with jewels, superb in her strength. She climbed the steps leading to the dwelling wherein her father had slept, and up to the roof, and leaning to the balustrade raised her face to the sky which showed sullen and starless. Great sandstorms do not sweep the desert of Arabia, bringing devastation in their path, but the hot wind from the south will lift the topmost layer of sand hundreds of feet into the air, where it hangs like a pole across the heavens, causing men to hide their faces and cattle to flee for shelter from the terrific heat which descends from it, scorching the earth. She walked to the corner of the room, 
from which, through the cleft in the rock, the red sand of desert could be seen stretching in great waves away to the south. She stared down and drew her hands across her eyes and stared again, drew back with a half-utter cry of fear, then moved forward, leaning far over the coping, looking down at the very edge of the quicksands and as far out across the green waste as I could see, white shapes danced and whirled and both retreating, advancing, whirling hand in hand, flinging their white raiment up to the sky, which hung like a dun-colored ceiling, low down above their caperings. The scorching, sand-laden wind blew against her lips and through her hair and seemed to press like a gray bar of red-hot iron against the satin skin which showed beneath her body. And yet she stood looking down, watching the light flicker this way and that way over the quicksand, and the ghostly forms running up in pairs, in ones, in twos, in fives up and down and over the sand waves until they melted into far distance. She had heard the tale of the half-starved, half-witted, degenerated races which are supposed to inhibit the mysterious, unexplored depths of the great desert, living like lizard, worshipping the elements, intermarrying until brain and body are sapped of strength. And for the first time, she felt grateful for the ring of quacking sand which kept her safe from robbers, beasts, and such foul creatures as those which danced so merrily under the lowering sky. She loved beauty, she loved strength, and watched with shudder until the last white figure, leaping and bounding, had followed its fellows back to the unexplored regions of the desert, then knelt and bowed her beautiful head almost to the ground. But she knelt before the scorching flame of the love which had sprung up in her heart for Ralph Trenchard, as she had lain in his arms. Not for a day, not for an hour of the day, had he been out of her thoughts since the morning of the accident. She lay awake at night, thinking of the handsome face bent down to hers, she thrilled at the thought of his arms about her. She had thought of himself unceasingly as she raised death to reach her father. She had sworn by beard of prophet, which being a soulless woman, she had no right to do, to bring him someday to her mountain home and forever to her feet. She stretched out her arms and called him by name, scorched by the hot wind, which had twisted the sand into dancing shapes, sending them capering and leaping this way and that way. In the cross eddies from the east, a ghostly phenomenon seen once in a lifetime, if that. She ran to the side and looked out across the desert, which lay silent, foreboding, empty, and shivered under a sudden premonition of evil. Where are you? she cried beating her hands upon the burning stone. Where are you? I love you, love you, love you, and I'm calling you. There was no answer. 
At that very moment, Ralph Trenchard rode into the holiday camp pitched by Helen Rayner and her grandfather, Egypt's waterfinder. They had pitched it some 50 miles west of Ismailia while they waited, start upon the expedition into Arabia, which had for its object the discovery of water hidden in the heart of the range of mountains, as described upon William inscribed by Holy Palladius. End of chapter 4. Recording by Dwarika.